This is NBR's Live from the Hive, a compilation of the week's top stories straight out of the beehive. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. Well, where did that week go? This is Beehive Banter. As the house gets underway proper for the year and 100 days of promises to fulfil. All this while Brent Edwards sits in this small, I could almost say tiny, no-window, airless office, shaking his head, toiling away, trying to understand what, why and where. Meanwhile, I just swan in and sit down every week. So, Brent, yeah, so much to get through. Uh, Let's go. Three waters. Gone. So what, 1.3 billion down the drain? Well, not down the drain. I mean, but obviously the you know national and the other parties had always always said they'd get rid of the governments, the previous governments' three waters reform. So that was that's gone. We've, um, another thing that you know ticked off in terms of the hundred day plan. But of course, obviously the big questions now is exactly what will replace it. I mean, well, I'll tell you what will replace it. Councils have to borrow more money. Well, yeah, and that was, and certainly the the minister, local government minister Simeon Brown, has said now that you know it, there'll be flexibility. But I mean, it's funny because what they didn't like was the fact that ownership was taken off the council. So they said in terms yeah. of these new water services entities. But what's clear in whatever legislation will come through, and Simeon Brown says there will be two bills. Um, and one of them is going to actually, though, one will be a carrot to say, OK, it's all yours now, but the other one, the second one, will be the stick, which says if you don't do it right, we'll step in, effectively. <laughs> so essentially they're being encouraged to form these bigger groups among themselves voluntarily rather than having it imposed upon them under the previous uh, proposal. But if they don't do it, and are not meeting the sort of requirements, it, it certainly looks like the the legislation coming in will have some sort of force behind it where they will be forced to do it. So I do wonder if co-governance had not been in the Labor government's original plan, just how much opposition there would have been to that three waters reform. What a good question that is. It's a very good question coming from you. And no wonder the name is called this too, because local water done well. Yeah. Done well. What the? I mean, it sounds like a wishing well. Yeah, and we know until now local water <laughs> hasn't been done that well. No. Um, and, and partly partly because, to be fair to councils, they've lacked the financial resource to do it, but also because they haven't, they've lacked the focus on doing it. But, you know, we all know about the water problems in Wellington, leaking pipes, et cetera, et cetera. You look around the country, you go up to Auckland where you, you know, you survey the beaches and see how many beaches you can't swim at because of pollution from wastewater. Uh, it's a common problem around the country. And so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see just how much they'll do that. And the idea of the water services entities was that they could take that debt off the local council's yes. books and that those, those entities will be able to borrow money to pay for the, you know, investments yeah. needed in upgrading water pipes, um, it looks like this government is trying to set up something similar with whatever voluntary groups are formed by councils. But it looks, you think that process is still going to take some time. So, meanwhile, the water still pours down our streets. That's right. Water yep. still pours down your streets, and the shit still runs into the sea. I can't believe you said that. At, <laughs> at what point, though? Do the government realise calls for money are outweighing 
the money. Oh, I think that. No, for example, pipes, leaks, councils cancelling everything, cancelling everything they can. Ferries, reserve bank vaults, recovery funds, new one one system. The list goes on. Well, you know, schools, hospitals, roads. Oh yeah, I forgot I mean, those. Yeah, yeah. You know, them so, too. Yeah, I, I mean, and I think you know the government is aware of this, I mean, and that was a it was a problem confronting you know that confronted governments really for the last you know, three, four or five, you know, we keep on talking about an infrastructure deficit. Um, and some of that stuff, like a 111 system, is part of the infrastructure too, and that's, you I know, think, needs to be upgraded, obviously, to... I think Labor are happy they're not in government. Well, you know, there's... Why certain, would you want to be there well, with a, all this? Well, they were dealing with all of it too, so, you know, it's it's not new. They were trying to deal with it, and obviously oh. um, the voters determined they weren't dealing with no, it well enough. Right. Well, enough. And they made the right decision, and let me explain to you why. Luxon, for example, fine Prime Minister. He's cut the cap on ministers' self-drive cars. Good to see cutting from the top. Now, they can only spend 70k instead of 85 And even better, the PM won't be getting one at all. He can probably use his wife's Tesla. You can probably just imagine the conversation. Can't you, Brent? OK, everybody, we've got to be seen to be doing our bit. So only 70,000. I know it'll be hard, but try your best. <laughs> well, I guess it'll pay for a few pipes, won't it? <laughs> oh. well, I mean, you do laugh at it, but I guess, you know, they've got to show some sort of example. So what? where do you look at? Oh, can we cut I that? I can imagine the discussions, you know, ministers but, saying, oh, what's that? Oh, yes, I could only afford 70,000. Yeah. It's not very nice, is it? I mean, what, what sort of car could you buy for 70 grand? I mean, Mate, I've never it, even it's, entertained it's, the know, idea of having a car for $70,000. No, it's well over my upper limit, so... <laughs> but anyway, because you know, haven't they got chauffeur-driven limousines? Well, I've still got chauffeur-driven limousines. Oh, thank yeah, God for that. For driving them around on official business and stuff, so and most times they'll be using, using that. So. Yeah, right. Right, benefit changes rush through Parliament. Despite the government being warned, it'll push well over 10,000 more children, I think 13,000 is the figure that was used, into poverty. With the minister basically saying, look after your own kids, and there'll be a lot of people who agree with that. Yeah, I mean, and this is where they're now indexing to inflation rather than to the rise yeah. in average wages. I mean, and over the longer term, that will mean that beneficiaries will get less than they otherwise might. Um, and interesting because the same week, this week, the um, Salvation Army's State of the Nation reports come out, which you know shows on the positive side actually the number of children in poverty has declined mm. over the last six years or so. Yep. But there are obviously other issues around cost of living, cost of housing, what have you. Um, and it made a pretty direct um, kind of comment really aimed, I guess, at this incoming government and perhaps at the last government too, not to not to look for simplistic solutions and not to play politics with these issues. But um, I guess from the Prime Minister's perspective, Christopher Luck keeps on talking about outcomes. It will be interesting three years from now to say, well, OK, has, have those poverty um, indicators got continued to get better or have they got worse as a result of this? And so, you know, in terms of outcomes, it... Well, it just seems to be sort of saying, hey, you, who hasn't had a job for ages, instead of relying on the state to look after and pay for the food, go get a job. Yeah, well, I mean, that, this government has said, you know, wants to get more people into work, although unemployment has also, as the um, Salvation yep. Army report noted, remained yep. pretty low. Um, but at the same time, the government has also relaxed um, the thresholds around the, um, you know, working family tax credits yes. to allow people in work on low incomes to earn a bit, bit more, more money before they had a bait. Yep. So. 
Right, moving on. Well, Brown has certainly hit the fan. You mentioned that little S word a little bit earlier on. Between Simeon Brown and Wayne Brown, uh, now with no Auckland petrol uh, tax money, Brown goes, stuff ya, stuff ya. I'm going to turn the tap off on projects funded by the regional fuel tax. Simeon Brown said, oh, no, wait a minute, i got $300 million for you, you can have it here. So there's this big giant power play going on. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's interesting. You would have thought there might have, might have been a bit more conversation Conver- before yeah. the two, yeah, before that think. happened. And, I mean, while the regional fuel tax has been turned off, you kind of expect at some point, because the Nationals talked about looking at congestion charges and other things, so that there'll be other mechanisms put in place that But, but somebody already might, told Len, uh, told Len, I've got all these Browns, uh, told him, Wayne Brown, that they could have that three hundred and sixty odd million dollars, mm. but now he's just going, yeah, don't care, turning it off. Turning I've off. I've sent the yeah, letter, okay. and it's not going to go ahead. So, so and now is, what? is Wayne Brown more browned off than Simeon Brown's browned oh, off? Oh, jeez, that's two questions today. I just don't know where it's all going. Right, latest poll. Now I know what you say about polls in this election cycle. Irrelevant. <laughs> Um, they show treaty issues, one of the top three issues for us that's really gone up there, and thus act up in the polls. Uh, it says cost of living most important. Well, speculation from some in the banking sector too this week that we've got two more rate rises from the Reserve Bank. That's not going to help nationals cause any at all. So what do you think about all that? Yeah, well, in terms of the polls, I mean, it's no um, surprise that treaty issues rates relatively highly because it's been getting a lot of media coverage, a well, lot of public, public coverage and, 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 yeah. and, of course, the ACT Party going very strong yeah. on its policy around treaty principles and not really backing down even when the Prime Minister says, well, um, National's not going to support it beyond the Senate Committee. So well, well, it's the it, make, most of the national people. Yeah, making it mm. quite, quite an issue. Um, so, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that continues to play out. Um, but, I mean, I think even David Seymour himself said, read the polls... You know, it's just one poll, so let, let's wait and see the trends. That's yeah. um, and, but you know, I suppose from from Act's point of view, they'll be happy with that, and that might embolden them to go even further around the treaty principles. It probably issues. will. Uh, and that same poll showing support for the Greens with a big drop, proving that a lot thought of James Shaw as yeah. The look, I, I I just don't think um, people react so quickly to a, I mean I think if you then ask why have they dropped him you ask many people they probably don't even know James Shaw oh it could was, be the goal, goal is resigning. could be that no I think you know there's a range of options but normally polling doesn't pick up I know we love to say oh today this happened we've polled tomorrow <laughs> and look the effect it's had it generally is not that immediate so I mean then the why have they poll- dropped I don't know because I mean, the trouble is polls don't ask people why is it that if you said you'd vote green last time, you're now saying you won't vote green. I mean, Well, why don't they? They should make our job easier. Next week, Parliament sitting again, cramming in that 100-day plan of getting rid of everything with nothing but talk on replacements. Well, still a rush to get through and, yes, get rid of things. But, I mean, obviously, yeah, the... Still talk, but obviously the work, the policy work is starting on that stuff. I mean, for instance, if you go back to the Three Waters, Simeon Brown says that he expects to have the first bill, you know, putting up there, you know, let's do water well or whatever they, what 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 do they call it now? They call it local water done well. Local water done well. Yeah, well, (laughs) that that he expects that to be law by the middle of the year, so which isn't very far away, and then that the second bill would come in and be law by the middle of next year. So, you know... There's policy work going on. Um, they are, for instance, you know, looking to get that legislation on um, fast track consenting. That's going through. Yeah. They've been um, and, and, consulting. And building, supply, and building supplies. Yeah. They're trying to free up so, that 
so, you know, you competition. Know, the, the, and the, the work is happening, but yeah. it's, there's going to be a lag, though, between when they cancel yep. what Labor was doing and actually bring their own legislation to Well, that's to the OK, House. because with interest rates going up again, we won't be able to afford to do anything. You just sit there at home. So you're, listening, you're, listening or watching this. So your prospects of getting a $70,000 car is just going further and further down that drain? They've never been up any drain. Yeah. I know the drain that's leaking. <laughs> they see how I'm drawing <laughs> it together? Yeah. <laughs> that's been a busy and interesting week with many more to come. Again, we appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, and we'll see you again soon. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Building and Construction Minister Chris Pink is on a mission to lower the cost of building a house. To explain how the government intends doing that, he joins me now. Well, let's first start. I mean, you've got more up-to-date figures. What, we're about 50% more expensive than in Australia? Yeah, like many things, it's more expensive to do it in New Zealand, um, about 50% extra, as you've said, um, and when we think about the cost of building a house and the cost of buying a house and the cost of living, um, that's um, encouraging people to leave New Zealand and go to Australia, um, you know, we've got to be much more competitive than that. Has it got worse, that differential? Or Yeah, certainly the, the cost of building in New Zealand has increased a lot, so 41% since 2019, um, so that's a pre-COVID figure, um, and obviously there's a lot that's happened in the world since then, and, and there are some difficulties um, that are external to um a domestic government, but there are things within our power to to change about that. So we've got to get that back under control. So what are you going to do then? Well, there are a number of different points in the system that we can make a difference. So we've talked um, about um, streamlining the building consent process, the whole system overall. Um, but also there are some um, moves we can make in relation to the products that are used. Um, so overseas products, for example, that uh, people find difficult to use in New Zealand because they've got to be consented by one of the local councils and there are 67 different authorities with 67 different interpretations of the standard in this country and so for that reason often it's just all too hard, too expensive, too uncertain to try and get that product from overseas and use in New Zealand and of course without that competition and opening up to the whole world's worth of innovative products, um, sometimes cheaper products um, but still good quality products that we want, you know we're missing out. So what, will you just introduce some sort of uniform system then if it gets approved sort of centrally, then it just should apply across the country? Yeah, well, we want there to be clarity and consistency between the New Zealand Building Consent Authorities, um, but also we say that if um, overseas uh, jurisdictions are already using a product that they've decided in a reasonable way, if we're talking about a credible comparable country. Um, for example, it might be Australia that, that we say, you know, in a schedule or in regulations that uh, enables, um, you know, their people to use these products, then then we've got to work pretty hard to try and justify why that shouldn't be the case in New Zealand. So that's our starting point and that's the, the detailed policy work we're doing at the moment. I mean, the Commerce Commission did that study, right, market study into, I mean, have you picked up anything from that? I mean... Yeah, the Commerce Commission has had something to say about that from the anti-competitive angle. Um, I think it's not necessarily uh, the case or just the case that, that there are um, those in New Zealand who have got a, a financial incentive to keep others out. It's more that we need to proactively understand what risk um, is being faced by building consent authorities. You know, you think about if you're if you're a council and, and you're trying to avoid ratepayers being in the gun um, for a legal challenge if they were to approve something that um, proved to be unsuitable, 
Well, uh, I suppose we all think of leaky homes. Yeah, of course. Well, that's the, that's the classic case. So we've got to be careful that we do this in a sensible way. But at the same time, you know, there is a balance to be struck here. Uh, and uh, we don't want to um, throw out the baby with the bathwater and, and allow, um, you know, um, or introduce the possibility of um, problems later down the track. But of course, there are sensible ways we can mitigate that. And, and one of them is to say, well, if there are approvals um, by equivalent countries and um, if there aren't good reasons to preclude them, then we should um, flip it around and, and say, you know, well, that, that could be a policy response to say that we'll much more readily um, allow those overseas products to be used here. I mean, what about the structure of the industry itself? And I mean, I think of building companies and I think Productivity Commission in previous reports has, has noted just how many small building companies, often one-person sort of companies really, and that you don't get the economies of scale. But I think at the same time, the government is, you, you're doing away with the construction accord, aren't you? Uh, no. Um, what we've said is we will stop, and indeed we have stopped, um, work that was started under the last government's industry transformation plans. There are uh, some work um, projects that, that were sort of halfway through that we've allowed to continue to run through, um, but no more new ones will be embarked upon. Um, but the construction sector accord actually predated the last government, and there is some valuable work that it's done in engaging with the sector. Because, of course, the danger is um, if you sit in Wellington, uh, and, and aren't aware of all the um, issues being faced by industry on the ground throughout New Zealand, then, then you lose touch. Um, so we do need a vehicle for engaging with the sector. Construction Sector Accord has done some good work along those lines, so we're looking exactly what that looks like uh, going forward, but it's been retained, at least for now, in some form. But, but do you see any um, potential for improving the sector around, around how it's organised? Can it be made more competitive? Can we get economies of scale... Um, and for instance, you know, there's also been a lot of talk about prefabricated building, sort of the factory building. Can that sort of really be given a kickstart? Yeah, I think we would be um, cautious about uh, mandating any um, particular um, structures of um, the private sector who engaged in the building. But of course, it might be a natural consequence of um, uh, freeing up uh, people to do building um, and reducing that red tape that they can therefore achieve economies of scale. Uh, an example would be uh, in relation to what are called multi-proofs. So this is where you've got a sufficiently large-scale builder uh, who wants to build, say, 10 or more uh, homes of a similar design or the same design with perhaps a minor variation. So we're looking at a f uh, encouraging people to do that by making it clearer what they don't need consent for if it's merely a, a minor variation. So, you know, the devil's in the detail, but if we get these things right, we'll make it easier for people to do their job and to organise themselves in the most efficient way. And of course, the ultimate beneficiary of that isn't just the builders themselves, although that's important, um, and all those who contribute to the construction pipeline, but of course, the, the consumer, the, the New Zealand homeowner. So how soon can we, can we expect to see changes where, you know, the consenting process is streamlined and things are made a lot easier, that you're getting materials in more easily that can be used um, in building homes. Yeah, I mean, it'll be, um, it'll be a process that um, involves, I hope, um, a few relatively quick, easy wins. Um, and those are the things we've talked about already as a government. And the government formation, um, for example, in the New Zealand First National Coalition Agreement, uh, we talked about uh, allowing... Uh, uh, homes that are relatively small, you know, minor dwellings or granny flats as they might often be, are to be uh, built without consent. Um, and so that's an example of something that's already been agreed at a political level that could therefore um, take place relatively quickly. Um, but there are other bigger 
questions, more structural questions in terms of um, building consent authorities and you know what the right number is of those and, and how do we rationalise um, councils doing that work currently. There might be more efficient ways of doing it. It might be that they can um, take work off each other and specialise a bit, for example. So that deserves a, a bit of a longer um, look to hear from all the ones, you know, all the people who would be affected by that. Chris Pink, thank you for your time. Thank you. In its first couple of weeks, the coalition government scrapped fair pay agreements and extended the 90-day trial to all employers. To talk about what else is on the employment law agenda, I'm joined by Workplace Relations and Safety Minister Brooke Van Velden. Um, well, let, let's just talk quickly about that, that, what you have done. I mean, you, you did those very quickly. Obviously, got some criticism from, I guess, unions and others that you were, I guess, undermining the rights of low-income workers. And, and I guess that criticism has been reiterated this year when you announce the increase in the minimum wage. Well, what's your response to that? Well, my response to that is absolutely not. You know, my my whole approach here has been we need to give business certainty. We need to give back business confidence because if we are a government that supports businesses, we ultimately support workers. You know, we want a flexible labour market that works for all employers actually feeling like they have the confidence to give someone new an opportunity or to be able to say, yep, we know what the employment laws are. They're set in stone now. There's no funny business. We actually know how we can get on and employ with confidence. And I think that's what we have aimed to do. That's why it's been in our first 100 days to repeal the fair pay agreements um, and to reinstate those 90-day trials. Because I've been hearing from businesses up and down the community um, that the fair pay agreements was really going to hurt them. You know, you take, for example, a small butcher, uh, like I have even in, in Tamaki, um, there are some small companies that just can't compete with larger players who set the set the rules of the game. Um, they can't possibly can compete with a countdown butcher, uh, for example. And if you've got all of these uh, people coming to the table, uh, setting the rules, setting the wages for an entire industry, um, that could see some of our small businesses knocked out. And that's not what this government wanted to achieve. Do you think, though, that there are some, for instance, taking supermarkets, and I think it came out of the COVID-19 pandemic when supermarkets stayed open and those workers remained at their jobs, I suppose, despite the rest of us kind of staying safe at home. But how did they negotiate, I guess, better working conditions and wages? I mean, everyone seems to appreciate that the job they did was pretty important, particularly at that time. Yeah, well, I mean, if you if you think of COVID, this was a, a very different government. But even at that time, we had rules that were set by the government that favoured some large players. You know, some supermarkets were able to stay open, but the small shops on your corner of your street weren't deemed essential, and some of those had to close. And, you know, take the butchers, for example, in those instances. Um, so this is a government that says, yep, we want rules of the game that work for the big players and the small players. We want a flexible labour market that ultimately provides employment opportunities for people up and down the country. And that's why we wanted to make sure that we had those flexible labour market settings and we got them right. Um, And that's why I've also gone ahead with uh, setting the new minimum wage, uh, making sure that we are, yes, having an increase so that we're supporting the wages of our lowest paid Kiwis, but also acknowledging that over the last few years, um, the balance has been wrong. 
you know, the minimum wage has been set at a rate that's gone up nearly 50% in seven years. When we've had cost of living pressure or CPI only go up around 25%, so it's double. Um, and when I'm hearing from businesses who say, look, we've had a new public holiday with Matariki, you know, we've got uh, 10 days sick leave now, it just all the time feels like there's more and more pressure and we have less money to actually pay our staff well because we've got so much regulatory compliance with the government. Uh, so what I was hoping to achieve with setting the minimum wage at 2% was saying, yep, let's get that balance right. We do want to support our lowest paid workers, but not put up the minimum wage so high uh, that you end up with employers saying, we just cannot afford these extra costs. They flow on back into the economy, and we have to put up you know, the price of our, our goods that we're selling. You know, if you're a small cafe owner, for example, um, you're having to put up the price of everything that you're selling, and that has another inflationary impact. So it was getting that balance right. I mean, talking about a regulatory compliance, I mean, obviously David Seymour is going to be looking at this, particularly in his ministerial role, but one of the um, parts of the coalition agreement between ACT and National is to simplify health and safety laws and regulations. So... What are you looking at there? Well, I'm really excited about this whole term. You know, we've got a few things that we need to get done in our coalition agreement. I've ticked off two with the FPAs and the 90-day trials. Um, but yes, we'll have a lot of work going ahead with uh, health and safety reform. And that's because we've been hearing from a lot of businesses and a lot of employees who find that the rules and the red tape of just trying to do basic services in the economy are really hard. Um, companies having to hire people specifically to make sure that they're actually following all the rules and getting it all right. And yes, we, we want workers to be safe in their work environment. I think that's really important that people come home uh, from the end of the day and they're safe and they're back to their families. Uh, but we're not putting on so much cost that it actually outweighs the benefit of health and safety law. Uh, so it's looking into that. I can't announce exactly what we're doing yet because I'm still setting my priorities, um, but that is going to be a very exciting work program. I see Peter Dunn has written this week about the use of road cones and traffic management and how <laughs> over the top that is. It is. Is, is, is. is that an area that you might look at? I know that's, that's front and centre for a lot of people because it's something that everybody can see, Right. Uh, you don't need to be involved in a specific industry to see the effect of overcompliance. Where in, anyone who just wants to make one little change to a road somehow has to shut down the whole thing, and you've got hundreds of, of cones. Um, we're seeing that across every industry. You know, you might not be involved in health and safety work um, in specific niche areas, but it is there. Um, and so it's our job and the new job of the government. Uh, to look into regulatory burden and overcompliance, um, and also make sure that we're getting that balance right between also ensuring that people come home safe. Yeah. Because in fact, actual fact, under all of those rules and regulations, I think our health and safety record still isn't that great, is it? Well, we, we do have some work to do on things like work safe and compliance. Um, that is an area of focus of mine as well, is making sure that, you know, where we have the regulator, uh, that the regulator is actually working effectively and efficiently uh, to ensure that businesses are being compliant with the law. It's not their job to go in and audit every company, uh, but it's the jobs of, 
of every employer to make sure that their workers are safe. But in order to do that, we need to make sure that the rules are there, they're easy to follow and people know what they are. Are you confident in WorkSafe as an agency? There is a lot of um, struggle with WorkSafe. We've seen that over the last few years. I'm really confident that we have a new CEO who's actually going to turn things around. Um, he's already hit the ground running, um, and I know that we're looking um, uh, for some new board appointments as well at the moment, and I expect that there'll be a lot of restructure to come to make sure that the regulator is operating effectively. So do you expect a sort of a change in focus on the organisation? I would highly expect so. What sort of change? What do you want, what do you want it doing yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to be working with WorkSafe over these coming months uh, to set um, new strategic performance measurements um, and also to make sure that we have a, a, more, a larger government focus on making sure that the regulator is actually working um, and using its efforts to get the maximum impact. Um, so we know that WorkSafe did go off the rails, um, but it is coming back on track. Look, another one you're looking at is simplifying personal grievance procedures. So, again, has work on that started? I mean, do you have any idea of what you'd like to do? Yeah, those those conversations are still to be had. So in these next few months, um, I'll be working on my priorities and making sure that we've got a work program for our workplace relations and safety for the next three years. My ultimate focus has been making sure that we stick to the 100-day commitments, uh, getting rid of the fair pay agreements, extending the 90-day trials. Um, separate to that again was uh, the minimum wage and the conversations with Cabinet, and now it is my work programme uh, to look to the future and what we can achieve. So what can employers expect then from you as Minister? Are you going to make things simpler for them and cut costs? Is that the idea? Well, the idea is that we want to be a government that does support business to support workers. Uh, we need a flexible labour market. We need fair rules that work for everybody, that are clear, they're understandable, they're simple, uh, so that businesses can get on with their role in the economy. Uh, it's not the role of the government to be micromanagers of the economy. It's to set the clear rules, get out of the way and allow businesses to thrive. Um, and that's what my focus is on making sure that we have employment law that works, that's simple, uh, that we have health and safety laws that are more simple, um, and that everybody has a thriving economy. Brooke Van Velden, thank you for your time. Thank you. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. There now appears to be a growing political consensus that changes need to be made to the Public Finance Act to ensure the government can measure how effective its spending actually is. Well, to discuss, I'm joined by NBR's political editor, Brent Edwards. What is the problem with how it's being reported? Well, well the problem here is, and, and, um, is that at the moment most government agencies report their spending in terms of have they met the appropriations. So, you know, we have a budget each year and in the budget certain amounts of money are appropriated to individual departments, but more than that, they're specifically appropriated for specific projects, policies, programmes. And so Parliament wants to know, is the money that was appropriated, because Parliament then has to basically give that the approval, the money it appropriated for that spending, is it spent where it's meant to be spent? And at the moment, 
that's what it gets from the public accounts, that it gets told, yes, you gave us, you know, $1 million to spend on John O'Mitchell, and we spent $1 million on John O'Mitchell. But what it doesn't tell us is, did it make John O'Mitchell better at all? <laughs> is he improved? You know, what, what's the outcome? And so that, that's, that's, the big, that's the big issue, the missing part of the financial reporting system at the moment for okay. the government. This has been looked at exclusively and extensively by the Auditor-General for a while? Yeah, look, yeah, I mean, John Ryan's raised this issue for, for several years now that, you know, I mean, he points out actually that, that New Zealand has a very, very good um, system of public accounts in terms of that accounting, reporting and, and the like. But that issue about do we know whether the money spent is actually doing what it's meant to be doing. You know, if, so if it, they're spending on health or on education, is it leading to improvements in health and in education, particularly for specific policy programmes that ministers might have put up or governments put up and they've put aside money to do that? Um, and no one really knows. I mean, and he used an example in a select committee um, this week of the previous government's um, clean fresh water programme, $225 million. He said, but when, this, when the Environment Select Committee wanted to have a look at it, they had to call in six chief executives from six different agencies because they all had a bit of the pot, a bit of the money. Yeah. And they could tell them where the money was appropriated, but no one could then get a clear idea, well, was it actually leading to significant improvements in the quality of fresh water? So how likely is legislative change then? Well, look, you know, to be fair, the previous finance minister, Grant Robertson, had been you know, grappling with this issue a bit, although the Treasury had appeared a little bit standoffish when it came to it. But now uh, the new finance minister, Nicola Willis, is very clear that she is going to make changes to the Public Finance Act, including around trying to get greater clarity of being able to assess whether the outcomes actually meet, you know, the spending that was made. So, and and, and before Parliament rose um, before the last election, the, the Standing Orders, Orders Committee recommended that an ad hoc committee be set up by Parliament to actually have a look at this issue because, you know, it's actually important to Parliament. MPs need to know, um, you know, whether the money is actually having an effect or not. I mean, even Grant Robertson himself, who was Finance Minister for six years, mm. you know, expressed some frustration in the Select Committee this week that he himself often didn't quite know whether money was being spent effectively or not. So, you know, ministers presumably who you know, have these projects that they want to put money into, they think they're going to have an effect. They presumably do want to get back information and say, actually, yeah, the, the million dollars you spent on John o. Mitchell, it mm. worked. He's an improved figure. <laughs> oh, that would be nice. Is that where uh, targets are beneficial, do you think? Look, I mean, it, that, that's another issue altogether. I mean, that, that's not something that, for instance, that John Ryan talked about, about targets. It's, it is just simply about better reporting and okay. getting government agencies. And, and, and he makes the point, for instance, that they'll ask government agencies for some of this information, but they'll just say, well, we're not required to do it, so we won't do it. Because it does take a little bit of resource to then measure, well, you're spending so much money here. Tell us, what's it doing? What improvement is it making? Um, so that's why I mean, he argues that legislative change is needed because then that will put the onus on departments and agencies to actually have to do it rather than be a nice to have. Yeah, is this also linked with the, the broader issue around public sector cuts? Well, it's in a, in a, well, in a way it is in a sense that there's always been a 
one of the problems, I think, is that the public sector tends to have a silo sort of mechanism. You know, each department looks after its own, mm. and sometimes they grab the money and, and are bidding against others for money, um, particularly in the budget process. And I think in this budget process, that will be exacerbated because each will probably be trying to minimise the damage that they see, from their perspective, they see in terms of the cuts. Um, But I guess from the government's perspective, it's arguing, well, the cuts are needed for two reasons, fiscal rectitude and the like, Mm -hmm. but also the government, I think, is presuming or hoping that it will also drive greater efficiencies to ensure that the money that is spent is spent more effectively. Brent Edwards, thank you. And that's been this week's Live from the Hive. Thanks for listening.